Hello, this is Camille Broderick, the host of Camille's Demi Hour, a 30-minute show dedicated to sharing an inside perspective of the Epicurean world here on Nantucket Island. You will hear from those voices who represent this fascinating place. And lastly, we hope to educate on wine, healthy cooking, and the agricultural and sustainable community here on Nantucket. And I would love to thank my underwriter this year, the Nantucket Culinary Center. One landmark building, three innovative floors, in a community-minded place to cook, dine, and gather. Welcome, everyone. This is Camille Broderick with Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. And this is a radio show where we talk about everything culinary, fun and delicious here on this island, which there are many things to talk about. I, well, I first would like to say that there are a lot of amazing team uh, partners here on this island who run restaurants. And we have one of the newest teams here on the, the show today. They are reopening a restaurant called Orinmore. We have Edwin Claflin. And John Tensinko. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, how's it going? Thank you. Hey, how's it going? Yeah. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? You're just open to restaurant. It's yeah, we're we're open. It's been uh exhausting but super exciting for us. And so I guess we should begin with um when did you officially open your doors this season? First day was May seventeenth. May seventeenth. Um, yeah. yeah, just in the nick of time for Wine Fest. It was been a whirlwind. So there's been a little bit of buzz. I would say of all the people I know, it's one of their top three restaurants on <laughs> island, and it has a lot of heritage and history, as well as having some some of the top chefs there. The history goes back to Peter Wallace opened the restaurant, uh, who used to be one of the executive chefs at Topper's while well, winning. And then his executive chef, Chris Freeman, took over the restaurant once Peter left, and now you guys are taking over from Chris. So that sounds like some pressure. What do you what, what do you what do you have to say about that? Well, I had always wanted to come back uh, to my home here on Nantucket. I was born and raised out here, and I had been searching for a great restaurant to to call my own. And John and I had met uh, a long time before that uh, at culinary school, and we had been hoping to find a place that we could make our own. And when we finally came across Oren Moore, a restaurant with such a great history and a high reputation. It was something that we thought we wanted to take on that challenge of taking it over. And, and Chris Freeman actually was the one that found us. And uh, I was in New York at the time and he he sought after us and we came to an agreement that we would be good people to take over the name and the legacy of the restaurant, it seemed like. so. Well, between the two of you, you have some amazing wine experience, culinary experience, pastry experience, and front of the house experience. So you're doing the job of four people? Yeah, but there's two of us, so we don't have to wear as many yeah, hats I mean, each. Yeah, hats off to Chris Freeman, who was getting it done with basically just him. I mean, I know his wife Heather was helping out as well, but we're kind of in there every day looking at each other like, man, that's this Herculean task that he was taking on because, yeah, the two of us giving up the work, it's still a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, kudos, Chris, if, <laughs> if you're listening to this. <laughs> um, that was nice. But I think, too, in terms of the whole you know pressure thing, one of the reasons we wanted to work together is that um, we've got very similar, you know, sort of a fine dining pedigree and just really high internal standards as well. And at the moment, I mean, I feel like the only pressure I feel, I feel like is coming from us Mm -hmm. personally, you know, just a drive to do very, very well and excel at whatever it is that we're, you know, serving the guests. And, um, and that for me, I think, you know, trumps any other sort of external things. We just want to make sure that, um, you know, our, our own tastes and, um, and standards are being met. 
Yeah, you said you don't necessarily need to reinvent the wheel at the restaurant, but you really want to execute things in a very proper and fun, tasteful way. So when you talk about having good, strong internal standards, there's such a huge landscape of restaurants here on the island. How do you separate yourself? What are those standards that you think are critical to running a great restaurant? Hmm. Well, <laughs> I love in the, um, the net, there's the Netflix documentary, Zero Dreams of Sushi. And um, oh, yeah. there's a line in there that I've always really liked. And he says, you know, in order to make delicious food, one must eat delicious food. And, um, you know, I think first and foremost, both of us, you know, we're definitely beyond restaurant tours. I mean, we're just foodies. We mm -hmm. love to go out and dine. And just it's such a big part of our lives. It's not only our jobs. It's also how we relax and enjoy yeah. ourselves. Yeah, we just both sort of, again, value taste and execution. And I'm really fascinated with very simple dishes and, and how widely, you know, they can vary based on the littlest details, like asking of each ingredient to what end and, mm -hmm. and how does it serve the dish? You know, right. basically, you know, the beautiful thing of, of doing excellent work at a restaurant is that the ingredients are, you know, highlighting each other and, and they're elevating one another. You know, right. if, 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 if something on the dish isn't bringing the rest of the components up with it, mm -hmm. um, then there's just no reason for it to be there. Right. With Chef Edwin Claflin's background being from Nantucket and coming here. I was born and raised out here. My mom founded and started Nantucket Bookworks. My dad had Nantucket Shipyard when I was growing up. So I spent a lot of time on the water and then hung out in Broad Street. And as a little kid, I used to go jump on a milk crate and use the sprayer over it, the Brotherhood, washing dishes for fun when I was bored uh, with my parents' job. And I started sort of getting into the Nantucket service industry pretty early. Mm -hmm. And then uh, while I was in college, I went away to uh, boarding school, then off to college in northern Maine. My senior year, I decided to stay and just live a summer up there and not come back to Nantucket uh, and work. I wanted to work in a restaurant. And so I got a job, which I thought was going to be a bartender, but uh, as restaurants sometimes have great stories, uh, the day before the restaurant was to open, they found their chef and their sous chef passed out in their liquor room. So <laughs> they shortly moved on to different a different community. Um, and they they basically needed to staff a, a restaurant. And they said, does anyone here know how to cook? And I said, I can cook a little bit. And I grew up in a family that was just passionate about food. And so I started cooking in a restaurant. And then all of a sudden I was a sous chef, you know, a few weeks afterwards. And all of a sudden I realized after that first three-month summer, and I realized I'd only taken two days off. And it was one of the most fun I'd ever had was being in a kitchen. So and you did I, that before you went to culinary school? And then I was going to go to law school. And then I said, uh, I asked my parents, I said, is it cool if I go to culinary school instead? And they said, yeah, do whatever you want. So I, uh, I applied to the Culinary Institute of America, and I was very nervous about not being able to get in because I didn't have a lot of restaurant experience, even mm -hmm. though my parents had had a bookstore cafe. I had grown up working in and out of restaurants. Uh, so I figured I, I wanted to shore up my skills before going to culinary school. And uh, I came back out here and worked one season at uh, Languedoc. Uh, at nights, and I was working at the rope walk during mm -hmm. the days. So I did, I did, I did, I did about uh, three months of doubles, true doubles. You know, that's an Nantucket summer. Yeah, seven a.m. <laughs> till till midnight. And I loved that. I loved that summer too. And then I went off to culinary school. And then uh, I guess it would have been day one or day two of culinary school. I met up with uh, John, who was in in our opening class together. Mm -hmm. So, John, your background, this is actually your first stint on Nantucket. But, John, I guess Edwin was the first person who brought you here. Uh, and your background is more on the West Central Everywhere Coast. <laughs> yeah, definitely a bit more wayward um, in my travels. But 
Absolutely. Basically, my only relation to the island at all is uh, is through Chef mm-hmm. and his family, pretty much. And um, the first time I made it out here was summer 2005 uh, mm-hmm. during uh, the summer break at CIA. And, uh, you know, we just came out and saw the island. And, I mean, it was it was that early that we were, you know, I think the words were uttered, you know, what, maybe we'll have a place out here someday. Yeah. And uh, just so far off in the future and, you know, just a couple of kids with the pipe dream and... Um, it's pretty. It's pretty insane that it's it's actually kind of panned out that way. Yeah. I think the most remarkable f- fact of it all is that, you know, in the intervening years and all the great places he's worked at, and I had my own little quick Michelin stint in Chicago at a restaurant called True. Um, you know, we've been surrounded by some incredible, you know, F and B professionals, mm-hmm. and through all that, um, you know, we still had one another earmarked um, for partnership. I mean, there was there was no one else that I could think of that I'd I'd rather work with, um, just in terms of. You know, not only a creative drive and, and sensibility, but just one thing that I, I really like working with him about is I mean, he's a chef who understands um, the service component of it and that and that restaurants is ultimately, you know, it's 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 an interpersonal experience. And some really great chefs end up, um, you know, they're like the true artiste and they're mm-hmm. so focused on the dish and they're just so completely zeroed in that um, sort of everything else disappears and doesn't matter. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's kind of, sometimes the kind of some of the guys who they don't want to sub anything on their dishes and they, you know, they want anything to be very difficult to work with because they're, they're so, uh, what is it, you know, right brain creative. It's mm-hmm. like that they, they can't even, you know, parse that out. Um, but one thing that I always remember with him was that, you know, he understands that this is, there's this whole other side of it that's happening outside of the kitchen. And that's really, you know, where everything happens ultimately. And that's where the customers are, are making decisions and, and they're the real bosses, you know, we own the restaurant, but if they don't come in, Right. You said that um, when you were working in different restaurants, you were collecting data and knowledge, what it takes to open a restaurant and what it takes to run a great restaurant. Like you said, you need to find the right people that you work with well together. What lessons do you think you've learned that have brought you to this point? Wow. Um, yeah, a bunch. I, I definitely I try to think of one solid thing. So I would moving around for everywhere from, you know, after New York, I was in um, California working a wine harvest, lived in uh Briefly in Chicago, New Orleans, D.C., Portland, Oregon, uh, Maui, kind of all over. And, yeah, just kind of learning all the different ways to skin the proverbial cat. Um, <laughs> basically, just, you know, obviously there's so many different ways to do a restaurant and people focus on certain things. And I would just kind of go in and, yeah, look around and absorb as much as I could. And when I felt like I'd learned the extent that I could, I just kind of moved on. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, trying to take... Definitely like cherish lessons from each. And Well, if you're just listening, we are talking with John Tancinko and Edwin Claflin. They are the new partners who just took over Orenmore right downtown, one of the historic restaurants here on Nantucket Island. Uh, it is their first season together here on the island. Again, this is Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. And we were talking to John about some of the lessons that he's learned along his journeys in the restaurant industry and what has brought him to the place where he is today. And I guess that question can directly go go to you now, Edwin. Yeah. Well, one of the chefs I worked with early on, he said something which I figured out really early on that was really important. He just said, you need to, when you're working, you should be stealing with your eyes constantly. And so once you've figured out how to learn, use a knife and not cut yourself and start to be able to pick your head up while you're working and see what's going on around you and watching the other cooks or the dishwashers or the servers or whoever, basically I, I started learning you just start absorbing information when you're out there. Mm-hmm. And my academic background and sort of love of learning meant that when I was at CIA, when I was doing the culinary program, I started out with John. Uh, we were in our opening skills classes, and and we went through the initial part of the program together. I realized that while everyone else 
we were scheduled to go on externship. And I realized I still wanted to learn more before going out into, I wanted to hit one of the big restaurants and learn a lot from them. And so I realized I wanted to learn, do the pastry program as well Mm -hmm. at CIA. I thought that most of the pastry instructors that I was meeting with, their skill level was just so high. And I really wanted to do the pastry program as well. So I went to the the deans and I said, hey, I want to do the pastry program. And they said, well, we'll finish the regular program and then come back and do the pastry. I said, is that another two years or was that another? It's their 21 month programs. Uh Uh-huh. But I basically realized that I could double up my time and and do it faster. Uh-huh. Um, they weren't very much into that because mm-hmm. the longer you're there, the more money you're giving them. So mm-hmm. they said, no, you can't do that. And I said, okay, unenroll me. Mm-hmm. So I quit culinary school. I then turned around, walked into the admissions office, said, I, I would like to apply for the pastry program. <laughs> and they said, you go here. And I said, no, I don't. I unenrolled. And then says, okay, yeah, we'll take your money. So I did the pastry program as well. And then I started doubling up classes to get out of there faster, to get back to there the real world. There is always a way. There is always a way. <laughs> it usually involves money. But uh, <laughs> uh, I said I wasn't going to pay them anymore, and they said, okay, you can do that. So um, I did the pastry program, and then I went on extern. I went down to um, to New York. Uh, I worked at Boulay, mm-hmm. um, David Boulay's restaurant down there doing pastries. Um, I also did a little bit at WD-50. I mean, these are just those are some names. Some amazing um, chefs. You wouldn't think that Boulet was. You think it's about dinner, but if right. some people don't know, they had the cafe that had some of the best pastries. Right. In so New York. I was there as they had just opened That's up. Incredible. Uh, the bakery, mm-hmm. and it was in their original space. They still had Danube at that time, mm-hmm. but at the time, it was the the highest reviewed restaurant in New York, which was which is why I wanted to go there. And yeah. and I got that exposure. And the pastry department there was doing some amazing, fantastic things. And got ex- that was my sort of first exposure to a meal that was that many courses. And in the pastry department, we were doing, I think, five pastry courses at that within time. Within that, right. Um, within a meal. And uh, so the pastry world was pretty intense there. But, uh, yeah, I got to do a little bit of uh, savory while I was down there too. I trailed on the hotline while I was mm-hmm. there because – So have you chosen one that you like better than the other or do you kind of go back and forth like I know – with one, like maybe like with wines for John or one of myself? The, you kind of I can't fall remember which with... instructor it was at CIA but he said um, – he said the – your most important impressions are always your first and your last and in the culinary world – it can go as far as just the opening door and the appearance of the restaurant um, and then the, the greeting that you get. But uh, food-wise and taste-wise, it's going to be your bread service and it's going to be your dessert service. Mm-hmm. So those things were something I realized early on that even though I wanted to be a savory chef and have my own restaurant eventually, that was the end goal always was to have my own restaurant. But to be able to have a pastry staff that you work with that you're not totally reliant on because you have a background that in, in that as well and you can mm-hmm. say – I want it to be produced this way. And then they can say, well, you can't do it that way. And I, I would say, well, I can do it that way. Let's let's do it that way. And so that's a big difference. It gives some empowerment if you are if you running that. the restaurant yourself. Yeah. And then so when I went back to CIA, I started working in a wine store too because mm-hmm. I realized how important wine and beverage service was into the restaurant world. And even though that I wasn't going to go down that path, I wanted the knowledge in it. So I worked in a wine store for a while. Right. And then sort of towards the end of CIA, John had taken up that fellowship in the front of the house and he was – teaching at the Fine Dining French restaurant uh, service, mm-hmm. table service, wine service. And so my final class at CIA, John was actually my instructor. And it was pretty <laughs> crazy to see someone that was my peer at that time, mm-hmm. how far he had progressed. And all of a sudden, he was straight up just teaching us. And he was – it was super impressive seeing someone who had that much 
he had learned so much so fast and he was mm-hmm. already teaching us so much about service. And we really learned a lot in CIA about how important this, the role of a service manager and the ability to have someone on your management team and as a co-owner uh, who's able to teach service. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can bring in you can bring in people to work with us, mm-hmm. and if they have the right attitude and if they have the work right work drive, he can teach them how to serve and do proper service and teach mm-hmm. them about wine and teach them about all these things right. that are are key to running a restaurant. There, there are some natural gifts there that a lot of great servers have, but I do believe that the education of service is absolutely possible. It's about an etiquette. It's about any sort of skill or technique like dance or something like that that you would have or a sport or something that you just need to refine. But uh, John, I do want to hear how you became most involved in wine. When was that aha moment that you discovered that you kind of love being on the floor and pouring that wine? And Yeah, there's been several sort of uh, what I deem uh, paradigm shifting moments, you know, when your world just kind of either rapidly expands or a perspective, you know, dramatically shifts. <laughs> One of the very first ones with wine was just in wines class and um, growing up, you know, in the house, just having whatever my parents were drinking basically. And at that point, my dad was fairly partial to like, California Chardonnays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was 18, 19, just half glass with dinner or whatever. I was just under the impression for a while that I didn't like white wine, but it turned out I just didn't really like California Chardonnays. <laughs> You know, broaden my horizons a bit, but still generally my palate leans toward, you know, more sort of restrained, balanced, acid-driven wines. So anyway, in wines class, I just remember we had a um, a Finger Lakes Riesling. And I just remember, okay, a wine from New York. I never heard of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Dr. Constantine Frank. Um, and he – or sorry, the wine teacher. We had it. I just It was just bursting with, you know, all this bright tropical fruit, you know, pineapple and mm-hmm. pear and lychee. And it was just – and, and it's just so acidic and bright. And my mouth was just salivating. And I just – I had never had something that – you know, that crisp yeah. before in terms of And that of gave you that response. And that, yeah, I mean, that was an initial sort of jolt. And then what, what the, the big thing was, as um, Chef alluded to earlier, was, yeah, my time at CIA was, was a little bit fraught, actually, because I, uh, much like Chef, ownership was something that was in my mind. Um, it was a goal that was, you know, long down the road. The vision of ownership was always, too, me, you know, in a coat and talking to guests. But I didn't understand, really, until kind of the final weeks at CIA that front of house was a career in and of itself that you could do. I didn't, it just never really occurred to me. And then in that curriculum, you're basically just cooking and serving in the on-campus restaurants. Well, my first time basically doing front of house and working with guests, just one instructor took a shining to me and he said, you know, hey, you're pretty good at this. Maybe you should do a front of house fellowship. And I wanted to do one with him, which is how they almost always happen. You go through someone's class and like you link and you get a spark and then you want to work with each other because it's a year long commitment. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, or you know, in hindsight, fortunately for me, the timing didn't line up. The way it works at the school, you have to be graduating. Basically, there was this tiny little window during which you could graduate and then pick up one of the fellowships. The fellowships were a year long, though, so you just kind of had to – the timing had to be sort of right, fortuitous, mm-hmm. right? And it wasn't right with him. And so I applied for uh, basically the only one that was available for me timing-wise and ended up with this uh, tremendous guy, basically the man who I consider my mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, his name was Raimundo Gabi. Uh, he was this brilliant – Brazilian guy who had worked at like Lutas and Oceana and the Waldorf and just mm-hmm. incredible beverage knowledge. And so I was his teaching assistant at the fine dining French restaurant at CIA. Mm-hmm. And it was um, really just from a desire of if there's one thing, I, you know, I really can't stand in a dining room either from myself or, you know, from my staff now as well. It's, you know, telling a guest I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so I was in this just found myself in this world and the wine list was almost entirely French and there was just so much knowledge to pick up as he was kind of, as chef kind of mentioned before like it was a really rapid phase of advancement for me and um 
it was sort of looking at that wine list, which was, you know, 95% French and realizing the sort of the appellation game, you know, mm-hmm. as it were, that, that sommeliers have to learn and play where it's like, I was really fascinated with the idea that if you knew, you know, the rules of where the wine came from, then you knew something about the wine without ever even drinking it. So that I would know that Gevre Chambertin would be tasting like this or Chambol Moussini like that versus, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, Bordeaux to the Rhone or, or whatever. Right. And that was just really fascinating. And then it was just became this desire to sort of collect all that information to be able to do the sort of, yeah, what I call like the matching game. of. If, if I could ask you both one last question, what do you want to uh, share with your guests in this first season, if they were to walk away with one sense or feeling or something to share with someone else, what would it be? Man, one thing. Um, well, it's always been a historic house of like beauty. It's 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 one of the houses that didn't burn down in the fire. So the building itself is from 1837. It has this great New England feel about it. We spruced it up a little bit on the inside, but kept it the heart of it all the sort of the same. In the kitchen, we put in a bunch of new equipment to modernize some of the cooking techniques but we want people we haven't done like a huge grand reopening or anything like that there's no there hasn't been an unveiling there have been tons of people who have come in and they are having a great meal they're loving it and then they say are you guys new ownership they don't realize that it's sort of changed dramatically because the essence and soul is still there but we're trying to just do really and that's good a great food. thing. Yeah. That's a good answer to just have them almost go unrecognized and they just are very satisfied and have a great experience. Yeah. There have been a, a, quite a few epiphany moments at the end of the meals mm-hmm. when they realize how many things are different, but it still has the same vibe. Uh-huh. We we both love cocktails and the cocktail program John's kind of come up with, they're just proper cocktails that are really tasty, mm-hmm. like super tasty. And then there has been uh, an air that Orrin Moore, being one of the top restaurants on, on Nantucket historically – People often feel like if it's a great restaurant, it's only for anniversaries or special occasions or when you want to spend a little extra money. And mm-hmm. we put a ton of things on there that are great values, mm-hmm. um, both in the wine world and also uh, on the food. You can go in and have a fairly affordable dinner and just enjoy your evening. And we're That's trying to get great. people coming in on a regular basis. That's great. That's one way to separate yourself. And I think people also understand that I'm from here. This is my home. I'm very happy to be back here. I, I don't want to say this maybe – but there are places on the island that kind of just gouge people mm-hmm. um, because they have to make their nut mm-hmm. in that short period of time. Right. And I think we are both of an understanding that if you provide a service that's really good and really high, people will come back and yep. frequent you even more often. And that's that's sort of a different business model maybe than some. So, John, are you going to be there when people walk in, you greet them and hopefully get to say farewell as well? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I know I'm, I'm all over that dining room every night, um, <laughs> just doing whatever needs to be happening. I um, mean, that was really one of the things that we we're doing with hiring as well. Is you know, it's like we like what we do. You know, and we we didn't we didn't we're not you know, <laughs> hedge funders opening a restaurant on a lark. You know, like <laughs> this is what we've done our entire lives, and we're going to continue to do it. And so ownership has changed very little in terms of that. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm still like I said, I'm I'll pour water, I'm clearing tables, and whatever has to be done. But saying right. it's just. And so that was really a big sell, I think, for, for our staff is that, you know, we're hands-on yeah. guys. We're, you know, but, yeah, I'm in there all the time ready to talk about wine, cocktails, food, everything. You said this is, this is our life. It's our passion. So um, in terms of, yeah, the key takeaway, I mean, as Chef was saying, you know, we're, we're making little, little tweaks here and there. The soul of the place is definitely still intact. Um, but I just think there are maybe a few more doors to be opened for the guest that's willing, you know, if, if they're willing to sort of take a journey with us. That's one of my favorite things as a sommelier is, you know, you come in and 
Um, I might not have the exact bottle you're looking for, you know, but if, if you tell me what it is that you're used to drinking, what you like, you know, keying in guests to something new and, and watching their eyes light up because they've, you know, never had Chardonnay from Northern Italy, you know, right. like this, it's, it's a really great experience. And that's, that's really, um, yeah, kind of what gives me my jollies on great. the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming in. I wish you the best of luck this season. I can't wait thank to come you. in and enjoy more food. And for all of those who are listening, we were speaking with Edwin Claflin, the chef at Ornmore, and his partner, John Tancinko. And this is 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. Please join us every weekend at 1 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. Cheers. And thanks again for listening to Camille's Demi Hour on Nantucket's NPR station. We are here every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m. following the NPR News. And if you have any feedback or ideas for the shows, please contact us at nantucketnpr.org. Enjoy your Nantucket summer and cheers.